Note to self, I wrote my first Gulp.js plugin, 2015 called, It Wants Its Build Script Back. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Working Code, and now your hosts, none of whom have ever seen a failing unit test, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 87. And on today's show, we're going to do another edition of Notes to Self. I thought maybe we'd call it version 0.2.0. Some for our podcast <laughs> themes here. But as usual, we'll start with our triumphs and fails. And Tim, I'm going to come to you first. What's going on, man? So I'm going to brand this new term, I have a no umph. Mm. <laughs> okay. It's not a triumph. It's not a failure. It's just there's, nah, there's not a whole lot to report. That's good, you know, though. I, yeah, I mean, I guess it's good. Things are pretty steady state. Business is growing. We're building new products, but it's like, yeah, I, I'm not feeling bad about that because you know, my my role is slowly shifting. You guys might have to kick me off the podcast at some point where it's shifting from an individual contributor to more of a product type general manager type role in the company. So I'm kind of slowly weaning myself off of certain things. I keep some things to myself just for my own sanity, but it, which which means I. I feel like the, my days are a lot more planned. You know, I used to, mm. I used to like to come in, particularly like way back when you know, I was like running the, the support department and it oh, was yeah. like, didn't really have a plan for the day. It was like, we walk in the door and just ride the dragon's tail till yeah. you go home. <laughs> right? It was very reactive, <laughs> but now it's more, a lot more planning. All right. What's our roadmap coming up? Okay. What are we going to build? Let's talk to some customer. Let's validate this stuff. And it's all fun stuff. I enjoy it, but it's like, I don't, get that same rush of, I found this problem that was endemic to the code that's been there for years and no one could fix it. And I came in and single-handedly fixed it. <laughs> it's not that dramatic anymore. So, yeah. but yes, yeah, so it's a no umph. Nothing, nothing bad, nothing good, just steady state. So I have found with all this project planning that I've been doing and kind of road mapping stuff that by the time I get the, like the planning part of it done, people need work. So I have to hand it off to let someone else start coding on it because I need to pick up like the next project to start planning. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I need to have a, a lull in between so that I can code some of it myself because yeah. I did all the, I did all the like grunt work to get this off the ground. Now let me put my brain to use like on the code. And oh man, I have to hand my baby over. It sounds like a very uncathartic situation. Like it would be very frustrating to never see mm. those things come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that pimple that never pops. You know, you just <laughs> left, you, you felt left feeling scarred and hurt, but <laughs> you don't get that satisfaction of that pop. I don't have that because I get super excited when my team does work it and it gets wrapped up, you know, that I did the kind of upfront legwork to take some of the roadblocks out of the way for them so they could get done what they need to get done. So I mean, I do get the road, like the joy from the product finally releasing. I just want to write more code. Okay. That's it. Just more code. Yeah. Well, I, what bugs me is like, so we're in our daily standup, right? So we've said, here's what we're building. Here's what we know what we're working on. They'll have questions maybe for sort of the vision of, right, how's the business, business is going to use this, that sort of questions. But it's like, as far as the implementation details and, you know, how they do it, I give them almost no input on that unless they just ask a personal preference, right? right. So it's like, yeah. And so that's kind of frustrating. It's like, I know you're really doing some really cool stuff here mm -hmm. and I have zero input on it unless you kind of get stuck a little bit. Yeah. So that's a little frustrating. But no, what's great is like whenever something you had in your head and then they do the initial demo of it and you take it, you start playing around with it and you're like, hey, this is pretty close to what I wanted. And they're like, right. okay, let's tweak this here. Let's tweak that there. And then you've got a new feature, a product that you've been working on. So that's pretty cool. Yep. But that is. Just, it's just different. It's not bad. How about you, Carol? I'm going to go with, I'm going to call this a failure. I feel like it's a failure just because it's on me, right? But it's probably not. It's probably not really a failure. So yesterday I had a full-blown panic attack. Like... Um sitting on the floor crying couldn't breathe chest hurting called my husband oh, like i don't know what's going on i feel like i'm dying there's something wrong my son wow. walks in the door because he was coming over from the other house he was gonna have lunch with me on his way to see his grandparents he's freaking out because he doesn't know what's going on and it was just it was a disaster and ended up going to the doctor and they put me on some meds to lower my blood pressure, even though I don't have high blood pressure, but apparently it's the first route you can take for panic attacks to just help <laughs> with 
preventing them. And it's like a temporary solution to just kind of work through everything. So it was like, take that med and go for a hike. <laughs> that was my prescription. She's like, you need to get out of the house. So you're spending too much time like cooped up, like just get out, go for a hike, enjoy being outside. Don't sit and just stare off or don't sit and like watch TV because that's when it makes things worse. So get out and do stuff. So I've realized that I'm spending way too much time inside just because I work mm-hmm. at home. I cook at home. I eat at home. I work out at home. I play with the dog at home. So I am going to try really hard to go out of the house more and just go do stuff. So today I went and worked at Steve's office with him instead of staying at home by myself. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to your office, sit at your desk, work with you today, and then come home. So I mean, it felt good nice. to just kind of be out and in a new environment doing stuff. So hopefully everything's resolved and I don't have another one because that was not fun. I haven't had one since I was like a teenager and I thought I would never have them again. And yeah, it was bad, bad. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I had to go through that. Yeah. Did something specific trigger it or it just came out of nowhere? No, oddly enough, nothing triggered it. There wasn't like a point in time that was like, oh, this is stressing me out or something's going on. I was on my couch, decided I was going to work on the couch and was in the middle of a merge conflict and was texting Steve and I just fell apart. Just was done. Mm. <laughs> Stupid code complex. <laughs> 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 so oh, I opened man. up my laptop this morning. I was like, oh yeah, I was in the middle of fixing this merge <laughs> conflict <laughs> when it all happened. <laughs> I could see yeah. how it might feel like a failure, but I mean, obviously you did all the right things to, to address it. So, I mean, it yeah. sounds like a triumph to me that yeah. it sucks. You had to go through that, but yeah. you know, you took care of it. Thanks. My daughter, she just finished up her, her first semester, not semester, she was doing dual enrollment in college and she was just taking an online psychology course. And she's like, I'm just amazed how much of psychology in our textbooks was all about getting some exercise, going outside yeah. and having a healthy diet. Right. <laughs> right. It changes so They weren't eschewing medicine at all, but they're like, unless you've tried those, those first, those th- three things first, then you really right. haven't tried them yet. So. Yeah. And what we do now, it's so easy to never leave your house. Like mm. I realized I had just signed up for Instacart again to start delivering groceries because I hate grocery shopping. <laughs> so I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to cancel Instacart. <laughs> I'll That's go to Publix. Funny. Fine. <laughs> but I'll get out of the house, even if it's for Publix. <laughs> I yeah. love supermarkets. I love going to the supermarket and just walking up and down the aisles. I find it very relaxing. With all the people? I used to. Then inflation came and I was like, oh, I feel like my dad now. A loaf of bread for three fifty. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. Five dollars for gas to get there. Yeah. Jeez. I used to, when I was a kid, my mom would send me up to the scratch and dent bread and milk store. Yeah. We had. <laughs> oh yeah. We had the day old. Yeah. Yeah. We had a store that was like, it was pretty much just like milk, eggs and bread and it was all super cheap, but it was like, you need to eat it in the next day or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's 48 hours away from becoming penicillin. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it for me. What about you, Adam? What you got? Well, I, it, I had a triumph. I feel a little bit bad after your story. Like I have to follow that and and follow it with a triumph. But I guess <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. So sorry. Win, be a winner. Yeah, right. So I just got back from a vacation. I went nice. down to Texas to visit my brother. He lives in Austin, and I took my family and we went down there for a week. Actually, mini triumph. I just realized we've been back for three or four days now and no signs of COVID. So we made it the whole trip, a bunch of flights and everything, a nice. bunch of extra time in the airport, unexpected, no COVID. So I'll call that a major success and totally worth me forcing my family to wear N95s instead of their cloth masks. Anyway, I'm back from vacation. I've been back for a couple of days now and I feel like I'm just crushing it already to steal a phrase crushing from Ben. It. Like today I sat down and before like my typical day, I just kind of saunter into my office. Like it's approaching nine o'clock. I sit down and get my thoughts together for a morning meeting and that sort of thing. And my mornings don't tend to be rapid fire work, but for some reason today I made it to my desk early. And by like 9am, I think I had like three different pull requests opened and just like rapid fire. Like, Oh, I could, you know, and it was, they were all of those things were like stupid fixes, right? Like I had a, I, I was, in there looking at something else or doing some maintenance work. And I saw a panel, like a bootstrap panel that we had added a border, like a custom border to. And because of the difference in the like border around the panel and the border radius of the panel itself, there was like a little gap in the corner. So it's just this like tiny little CSS fix to, to make that gap go away so that it looks nicer mm-hmm. instead of looking like somebody's 
kid brother coded it or whatever. But it's just like little things like that. I can fix that in two minutes. Slam it together, test it, make a pull request, get it done, get it out there. Just like I felt like I was firing on all cylinders this morning. So um, I'm real happy about that. Cool. That's a good Very vacation cool. then if you're ready to come back and get cranking. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something about Fantastic feeling vacation. motivated after. Just like your head's clear. And after thinking about things for a while, like at work, you kind of just get zoned in and kind of stop seeing everything. So when you take a vacation and come back, you're like, oh, it's like fresh eyes yeah. all over again. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it was it. definitely good to take some time off of work. But the one thing that I have to say is like vacationing with kids, especially kind of like special needs kids. Both my kids have ADHD and I don't think any of the four of us are without our issues. Um, <laughs> but and trying to deal with that in a different environment and try not to like rock the boat too much while we're there. We were staying with my brother at his house and he has a kid. Just, you're just trying to make sure that everybody has the best time possible. That was a lot of stress. And so I felt like yeah. while I was on vacation from work, I really wasn't taking any time for myself. It was just like, I'm in a different environment trying to keep my family happy and I could use a vacation for myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I completely get that. At work, so. we have a, every now and then if someone leaves the company, we'll have what we call a little happy hour to say goodbye mm -hmm. and talk about reflections of time well spent, et cetera. And I think this was Ben Darfler. He was one of our backend engineers left a couple of years ago. And in his happy hour, someone said, are you going to take a vacation between this job and your next job? And he said something like, I have kids. Once you have kids, you don't take vacation. You just go on trips. And mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just one of the best lines I've ever heard. Oh, that reminds me. I guess I didn't have a good opportunity to bring this up, Tim, when you were saying you didn't have a triumph or a failure. But I wanted to say that maybe your failure is that your progeny hasn't done anything great that you can ride on his <laughs> coattails this week. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for me. So that leaves you, Ben. What's going on, man? Oof. Brutal week. This is a failure. This is a huge failure. Probably the largest failure I think I'll ever share on this show which is that Envision, which just passed our 10 or 11 year mark, unfortunately, we've reached a point where we have to become profitable, which I know sounds like a very funny thing to say about a company, but we're a venture-backed company. And for years and years, we're just burning money, trying to build the business, trying to build the brand, trying to shape a business vertical. And that's just no longer sustainable. And we unfortunately had to say goodbye to a very large portion of our staff across all of our departments. I think we ended up laying off somewhere between 50 and 60% of our total headcount. Wow. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's just crazy. It feels so surreal and I feel terrible about all the people who were blindsided by it. We had people, we were literally hiring new people weeks before we had to do this and unfortunately all those people were also let go so it was just it mm. was really a just a terrible week last week for everybody but hopefully from those ashes rises a phoenix and and the company can move forward embracing more of a an agile mindset internally we've been talking about kind of going back to our startup roots and just being more agile and reducing process and reducing organizational hierarchy and just giving people more independence and there's a lot there to be excited about but obviously that's excitement in the in the shadow of a fairly tragic event right sure well it's heartbreaking yeah yeah i made it you made <laughs> it i made the cut i'm still there so, I mean, I don't want to be crass or downplay the unfortunate events of what happened to a bunch of these people. But in the context of this show and some of the things that we've talked about in the past, the very first question that comes to my mind is, and maybe it's too soon to know, but the very first question that comes to my mind is, does this change the plan for sunsetting the legacy application? I wanted to uh, ask yo. the same question. Such a good question. My intent is to work on the legacy platform until someone shoots me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, from what I've heard in the various meetings in sort of this post-apocalyptic era is the plan is still to sunset the legacy platform. But I think to be a little bit more cautious about it, there's also... It comes up in very weird ways. For example, 
if we are going to move a bunch of users from the old platform to the new platform, we have to let them know that's going to happen via email for legal reasons. And we have like literally millions of users in our database. These aren't necessarily people who are actively using. We don't have that many active users, but we still have to let people know. And the cost of sending out millions of emails is like shockingly high for whatever systems they, that they're looking, they were looking at using something called a customer IO. And it's just like, it's super expensive. And I think they were going to look at Marketo and Marketo. It gets complicated because there's all kinds of deliverability stuff. Cause now we're talking about legal liabilities mm-hmm. for letting people know. And I like sort of said, Hey, if you really can't do this, I can give me something <laughs> up for you. <laughs> so, so we get into these weird conversations where like, is it more expensive to send? millions of emails and it's just to let the legacy platform live forever like what's actually more expensive (laughs) and uh, because the legacy platform is surprisingly cheap in certain ways i actually just reduced our docker replica count from like we have two primary cold fusion services and one i reduced from like 30 nodes to 15 and then the other i reduced from 20 nodes down to five and the cpu is still like whisper quiet and it's being supported by a single person too Yo, yeah. and uh, to echo Adam, I feel like I'm crushing it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so just a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff happening right now. Yeah. Our main topic for the day is going to be, we're going to do another version of Ben's note to self. So if you're not familiar <laughs> way back, oh goodness, when was it? Totally not vamping for time to click the thing that says episodes and search for note. Episode 62, which was I guess not that long ago, but still several, many weeks back, we did a show where we went through some of Ben's notes that he left for himself in our private channel in our Discord and just let that laundry air and discuss it a little bit. Ben, you like to leave yourself (laughs) these sometimes cryptic, sometimes I don't even know how to describe them, just little notes to yourself. It's fun to go through and maybe revisit some of the ones that didn't didn't become a full-fledged thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So who wants to start us off? I have a question about the versioning number of this show. So in order to get a major release number, would it require one of us to start making our own note to selves? Then it would be like Uh, 1.2. Okay. So what we're getting into for the uninitiated here is called Semver, or that's short for semantic versioning. I personally prescribe to Semver 2.0.0, which it's just a, it's a, basically it's a contract in that it's a set of rules that you are agreeing to abide but it there's no penalty if you don't it's just this is a way of trying to be predictable for software versioning reasons that's helpful so you increment the the major version number if you introduce a breaking change so i would say if Ben left the show. That would be a breaking change. So uh, yeah, I just went with 0.2 because uh, we're doing it again. We're, it's another release. It's There's some new content here, but we're going to keep the same format. Note to self. Flaky tests feel suspicious to me, a non-tester. <laughs> the the oh, most yeah. fun part about this is trying to do like a an introspective voice. Mm-hmm. ASMR kind of voice. So, so I'll uh, prefix this with... The fact that I have, I, I don't test. I mean, I do manual testing. I don't have any automated testing. So I have pretty close to zero hands-on experience here. You have no freedom of speech. <laughs> and it's one of those things. So I'll be listening to podcasts or I'll be hearing an, an advertisement for something. And time and time again, people bring up this idea of flaky tests. That is automated tests that just sometimes don't work. And, mm-hmm. and... It's like so they I give wanna, false again, negatives, yes, or false yeah, positives. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And so again, I don't have hands-on experience here, but I do program, and like, I if I'm good at anything in this life, it's following a request from start to finish and kind of understanding where things break. And so I feel like when people talk about flaky tests, again, huge caveat here: no hands-on experience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's like my like BS meter goes off a little bit. It'd be like it'd be like if you were talking to an engineer and they were like, "Hey, yeah, I run this query against the database," and like just every now and then the database gives me the wrong data. I'd be like, "No, that's problem. not how databases work. So, that's definitely a you problem." 
Let me ask you if this is considered a flaky test. So when we do an MPE refresh, which if you, that just means we're taking our production data and we're bringing it down to non-production environments so that we have a nice testing and developing area and we clean it and everything. So no real data is there that could cause problems. But anyways, when we bring that down, there are several tests that fail because like, let's just say we have one that says, does user ID 10 have an active flag for this permission. Well, in production, this user no longer has that permission flag, but no one's ever updated Mm. the test to actually query to see does that user. So every time we come back down, we have these MP failures in the test because we have to go in and manually change it back in the database to turn that permission back on. So now the test passes. When there are ways to resolve that, I know it, but is that a flaky (laughs) test? So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, that's not even a test. That is just a waste of time. (laughs) Um, That test doesn't prove anything except that some data exists in a database in the way that somebody at one time was maybe expecting for some reason, but it doesn't prove anything. The permission would never be removed. That the permission still exists is my understanding. Anyway, so we we won't go into the details of why someone wrote it, but I'm just asking, is that a flaky test? (laughs) It's a waste of time. It's not a test at all. I think either that test needs to be updated to, to, represent what it's supposed to be testing or uh-huh. delete it. I'll say this to you, Ben. So in your scenario where you said, I'm very good at like following through the request chain to see where the error is, that means that an actual person, either a tester or a customer has received that test. At that point, the whole point of, of unit testing is to try to not have those in the first place so that you mm-hmm. sorry at the programming level right so it's like my my sorry my what i meant by that was that even as someone who doesn't write tests i feel like i have technical understanding and and that's what and and that's all i mean is that when i when someone tells me that they write code and then sometimes the code just doesn't work the way they expected it to. I'm like, like I just want yeah. to call. Like that's yeah. That's no, just- your instinct is dead on. A, a flaky test is a real thing, and it is a problem, and it's a symptom of a larger problem, right? It, the problem isn't that the test is flaky. The problem is that the test is not either the test is not well written or the system is not well testable. Mm. So I'll mm. give you an example of an right actual on. flaky test that I had to deal with, which was we had some, it was a CFML application and to run the tests, we were using command box and it would, I, I think it was like, a. this was okay. This was back before GitHub workflows and we were doing this on Travis CI and in order to make that work, I didn't put this together. I was not smart enough to be able to get stuff like this working on Travis, either at the time or possibly still currently. I was copying somebody else's work and modifying it to, to get it working, whatever. But long story short, our test suite would run and that involved downloading command box from a package registry, like uh, a okay. not NPM, but like a RPM or yum install or app get, that yep. sort of thing. And the server that hosted the package that was trying to be installed was flaky. Like it just would sometimes go offline. And if you can't install the thing that you need in order to run the test, then the tests sometimes pass and sometimes fail. And it became so almost like consistently 50% that we just had zero trust in the test anymore. And everybody (laughs) stopped paying attention when the tests failed. It was like, oh, they're failing. It must be because the thing is offline again. And then the tests that were actually running and were actually reporting real failures got ignored because we didn't have confidence that the test suite itself was useful. That is a flaky test. That is a terrible problem. And so we completely changed our testing approach because of that. Yeah. And, 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 I, and uh, I will also say that anything that has to hit the network, I mean, that's just out of your hands. That is definitely going to be flaky because networks just have problems. No control. Unreliable. Yeah. yeah. You have no For control. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's Next all I have one? to say about that. I, yeah. yeah. Like, Key I tests to, are the worst. We agree. Yes. Okay, Carol, why don't you do one? All right. Dear Diary, overly general CSS selectors are the worst. The worst. Input type text makes it much harder to override. P.S. I discovered sunglasses and they're amazing. Love, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a frustration that I feel on the daily because again, I'm working in a legacy application and the legacy application 
we hired someone years and years ago to build just kind of the core CSS. And he pulled in Bootstrap and then modified it as the core of our application. And this is not to Mm -hmm. throw shade on Bootstrap, but Bootstrap makes some very specific choices about how it wants to style things like and then the the guy who built our core CSS then also had some very specific ideas about how things should be done. So it's like every label element, like core label element has a bottom margin. And, oh. and it's like now every time you want to use that somewhere, you have to explicitly say, don't give me a bottom margin yeah. or give me a different bottom margin. So it's it, there's just so much general CSS that uh, it makes it very challenging to override. And then the example that Carol has there with the input of type equals text. It's like input and type equals text are two different selectors uh, in Mm -hmm. terms of specificity. So now it's, if I want to override that, I can't just use a class because element and attribute is actually a higher specificity than class. (laughs) So if I want to override the styling on an input, I have to just add additional classes <laughs> or do input dot class to make sure that I have an equal specificity. And it's just, it, it's just such a nightmare and it makes me angry. Yeah, you're not wrong. I'm over here like trying to hold in my, my yeah. I'm biting my lips over here to, to hold it in. I did a hack and I forget how I came across this, but you're absolutely right about the specificity being the problem. And one day I have no idea how I came across this idea. Maybe I <laughs> thought it up myself, but if you just put a class on something and then when you're in your CSS file where you're defining the rules, if you put like, so if your class name is foo, if you do dot foo, dot foo, dot foo, dot foo, dot foo, dot foo, <laughs> the, the specificity, I, I don't like, I don't know if classes multiply or, or if that's IDs or whatever, but like you can just repeat the same selector and that increases the specificity. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, cause I think elements, attributes, and classes I think they all have the same oh level of specificity. Gosh. So you just have to have more of that number than the other people. Right. <laughs> I just, I want to see this yeah. code like popped up somewhere where it's just like one after the other. I'd be like, what yeah. the hell are you trying to accomplish I, right now? <laughs> I have no memory of what, uh, where I did this, what the reason was or anything like that. And I'm sure it was like when I was in that gap where like I, I now know enough to get myself into deep trouble with CSS, yeah. but I'm not actually good at it yet. And I feel like I hopefully have grown beyond that now and I can not paint myself into that corner, but you know, I just feel like I can't get good at it. Like I don't do hard. it enough to get good at it. Yeah. And I get super frustrated when I'm doing it that I end up asking someone to help me and they take over because I'm doing such a bad job that I go back to doing something I'm good at. And CSS, I think, is one of the hardest things to clean up in an application because oh, yeah. nothing blows up, right? If I if I have a base style for input type equals text, I, I can't just remove that because there's inputs of type text everywhere in the application. And mm-hmm. again, it's not like the code will suddenly break. It'll just, the UI will just look junky. And even if you had unit tests and integration tests, like unless you're doing UI snapshotting, which from everything I've heard is a nightmare in and of itself. Uh, You're not going to be able to find this. And Mm -hmm. it's terrifying. I mean, that's why, thankfully, a lot of applications have moved towards, uh, there's so many different names for it, like CSS and JS and component styles, and where it's the CSS is very tied to a very specific component. To that module, yeah. Yeah, yeah, makes it so much easier. For sure. But that usually required, that usually ends up with duplication though too, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that is the life story of CSS. Duplication is yeah. its game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, it's such a continuously evolving beast that there's, it's almost not worth it to try and prevent duplication in your CSS. It's like, just get it done. <laughs> I think the, I can't remember if this is in the Go world or if this is the Ruby world, but one, either Ruby or Go has an idiom, a little duplication is better than a little coupling or something like that. And I think CSS, I look at CSS very much the same way. I'd rather have some CSS duplicated rather than having a whole bunch of elements now coupled together because they happen to share the same class or something mm-hmm. like that. that. Avoid hasty and, abstractions. Yes. And one of these days, I'll look at Tailwind. People seem to rave about Tailwind because I think it solves a lot of these problems, supposedly. Tailwind is like, it's not really, so Bootstrap, I would say, is like paint by numbers, right? It gives you 
things and okay, you can pick a color here and you can put this control over there. Tailwind is like, I don't know, maybe bumper bowling, right? Like it's, it keeps you in your lane. You, you set these specified like, okay, I want a large to be this big and a medium to be this big and a small to be this big. Yeah. I don't know. That's the best I got. I'm going to watch it like a, I think there's, I think there's some Udemy courses on Tailwind. I'll probably just start out by doing that just to kind of let it wash over me. Cause I, I've looked at some of the code, like demo code and it just, it's like reading another language to me it, it, mm. until I guess you really understand what all the little shorthand yeah. for the CSS classes mean. The class names, yeah. They can be kind of cryptic if you don't know what you're... It's, I think it's much easier to go, okay, I want to do a bottom right border radius. How do I do that? And look it up than to read the code and go, oh, this is a bottom right border radius, right? So it's like right. regex, right? It's easier to write than it is to read. But there's cheat sheets and stuff to to deal with that. And I think that the way I would love to see it used in my applications going forward is Tailwind classes on components. But then once you start using the component, you that is no longer something that you're looking at, right? I'm doing an accordion yeah. view and it's it has some things inside it that control the styling, but that's not what I'm concerned about while I'm using the accordion. Well, and that's the thing that that I fail to connect with when I hear people talk about Tailwind, because eventually someone will say, well, what happens when I have 17 buttons and I want them all to have the same style? And then they're like, someone will be just like, oh, well, then you just create a, like a utility class that encapsulates all the other Tailwind styles that you want to add. And then I'm like, well, then why am I using it in the first place? Like, why don't I just have my button class that I want all those styles in? And just write vanilla CSS. And it, it just feels like we eventually get back to the componentization of things anyway. So I, again, I don't have any experience here. And I don't know anything about Tailwind really other than what I've heard. So yeah, uh, again, I'm not throwing shade or anything. I, I think it has, you know what, I've been using utility classes for styling. Just my own made up utility classes for a long time. It's nice to, and I guess I was just doing it because the shorthand of writing like MT5 for margin top five pixels was handy rather than having to type out style equals margin dash top colon five PX semicolon mm. every time, right? And so I uh, like when Tailwind became a thing, the utility class thing, I was like, that's okay, that's kind of what I was already doing. What does this person, Adam Wathen, who created Tailwind, what does he understand at a more fundamental level that I don't? And that kind of revisiting that and digging into that, I think made a lot of sense to me. So I can understand how if you haven't had that same experience, it doesn't click as easily, but yeah. And it is really amazing that they, it essentially caps the amount of CSS that your application can ever have because you yeah. have all this, these atoms, these atomic values of CSS and you're just mixing and matching. So your HTML can continue to grow and grow forever. But the amount of CSS that you actually have is fairly finite, which is, I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to turn this into a Tailwind love fest, but they have a new like <laughs> JIT, just-in-time compile sort of thing where like you build your app. I, I've only messed with it with Svelte, but basically Tailwind is integrated into the build process. So the styles that you use in your components are the only ones that appear in the style sheet. Mm -hmm. So instead of like including the bootstrap CSS file and you've got all of these rules that you're not using, the CSS file that comes out of the JIT approach is only the rules that you're using. So it's even more, I'm going to say it, it's even more svelte. It's slimmer. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Can we get one more in? Oh, let's do it. Note to self. I wrote my first Gulp.js plugin, 2015 called, It Wants Its Build Script Back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love the laugh. So build processes are something that I have very little experience with. I, on our legacy application, some team uh, seven or eight years ago built the build scripts, and it's literally been the same build script since then, and that team no longer exists, and all of those people have left the company probably five years ago. And I've been slowly trying to improve the legacy application, shocker, and I needed to make some tweaks to the build script and it used Gulp. And uh, I don't even remember what the heck it did because this note to self is from like a month or two ago. Oh, I remember what it was. So in AngularJS, you can define components and you can say that the template for this component exists at this URL. And there was a Gulp script that would take that URL and essentially read it into 
some code and pre-cache it using this AngularJS, very specific kind of a thing. But the way that Angular was executing that, it was causing a whole lot of processing that it shouldn't have been. And so I needed to write a, a Gulp.js plugin that didn't just pre-cache it, but actually replace the template URL with the actual template itself. So essentially interpolate the content of the HTML into the code. And I did it. I mean, it was pretty exciting. I know this sounds stupid. It ended up being like 30 lines of code and it uses through two streams and node. And I don't really know anything about streams and node. I actually years ago spent like, God, it felt like four months trying to understand how streams and node work just so that I could mm-hmm. build a Gulp.js plugin. And then I ended up then this team came in and they did all the builds anyway. So I never ended up having to use any of that information. But I don't know. I just felt super proud of myself for making this Gulp.js plugin, even though I know it's wildly out of date and mm-hmm. not supported by any known plugins in the NPM system anymore. But I think it's on brand. You're still writing Cold Fusion. You're still writing Gulp. Those things go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> But I, you know, you were talking about ES build the other day and yep. I mean, I would love to be able to upgrade our build process to use something more modern, whether it's ES build or even Webpack or roll up or just skip Webpack. <laughs> what's the other one? Uh, go straight to V. like a box on it. Oh yeah. V. I hear everyone's just raving about everything in the V ecosystem. In, in the view ecosystem, yeah. people just are like freaking out about how great everything is. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have much more to say on that. It's just, I was very proud of myself that I did this <laughs> tiny little thing. Well, and it took me like six hours. <laughs> as someone who 10 years ago tried to write a Gulp plugin <laughs> and had difficulty with it, I commend you because that's not an easy thing to accomplish, especially now that nobody uses Gulp anymore and you there's probably no yeah. good help for it. No. But it, it's interesting because it also did give me insight into serious blind spots, I would say, in how build systems work. So the way that this that our build works is that we take a whole bunch of JavaScript files and we essentially concatenate them together and minify them. Mm-hmm. And then they do sort of the same thing with the HTML files. But the problem is now I had this small subset of components that was actually pulling the HTML into the code itself, but the other part of the process didn't know that. So what I would have ended up doing was both pulling that code in one place and then concatenating it in another place. And it would have basically been a no-op in one way. Like it just, like one process would have put it somewhere that no one would have ever looked for it. But I realized that it's one thing to look at a build step as a series of small steps, but oftentimes those small steps have to know about each other to some degree. And I don't understand the mechanics by which that happens. And it's, it's not just a gulp issue. If you look at Webpack, where it'll do things like code splitting or it'll pull CSS into other components and then it'll generate link tags that automatically get injected into HTML templates that that point to that CSS. And, I'm, and it's just like, I don't understand how the communication between the different parts of the build happens. It all feels either, it's either like extremely magical or it's just like so obvious, it's not obvious, where it's like they just keep a manifest of all the things that they've done and they pass that manifest to every single step so that every single... It's like the, in, in a Node Express app, you can pass requests down through all of your middleware. That's how all the middleware can know about the other middleware that's executed. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's stupid. I mean, it's stupid in that it's so obvious. Like, yeah, you just take like the world of information and just keep passing it down the pipeline so that anyone could add anything to it And then anyone down the line can check to see if that thing was added. And it's like, I don't know if that's just what's happening. And it's so obtuse that I can't see that's what's happening. Or if something actually like really magical is happening. That's a lot of rambling. Sorry. Builds are hard. I think we have time for another. Let's do it. Do it? Okay. Let's see. Note to self. I spend a lot of time sharpening my blade, which I often think is a waste of time. However, upon reflection, I see that so much of what I glean in my experimentation is such that I end up applying to work. So maybe it's not a waste of time. Hearts and kisses, Ben. (laughs) So I spend, I'd say, an extraordinary amount of time looking at code and thinking to myself, what if it worked this way? Or what if I tried this? Or what if I pass this value into that value? Or 
can I reference this method in a funky way? Or can I store this in a scope and then try to reference later? Or what happens if I pass something through this weird serialization process? And I, so much of that feels like, if you think about the total amount of understanding someone can have for a particular area, like Cold Fusion or JavaScript or CSS or whatever, it's like at some point there's a diminishing return on investment. Like I'm adequate, I'm pretty proficient. And then all the time that I spend researching above and beyond that maybe is a waste of time. And maybe that time would be better spent learning something entirely newer or trying to have a completely different perspective. I love relational databases. So does it make more sense to understand how indexes work? Or should I look at a document database or a key value store or something like that or an event stream to, to really radically shift the way I view the world? Would that be a better investment of my time? And I struggle with this a lot. But then every now and then, I'll be doing something at work and, and we'll run into an issue. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I actually looked at this a couple of years ago. I totally know how to do this. And suddenly I see an opportunity <laughs> to apply this like stupid little thing that I learned years ago. And, it, and it, now it's a breakthrough in what I'm doing at work. And now I'm like, holy monkeys. This it, is a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Jurassic Park reference. <laughs> but... So every now and then, like, I'll realize that this silly, esoteric piece of information that I've squirreled away in my head and have not used and maybe was a waste of time, suddenly that's, uh, it's at my fingertips and I'm using it to solve a problem. And I'm realizing or I'm thinking that maybe all this random time that I spend looking at odd aspects of a language or technology, like those actually do add value in the long run? Or is a broken clock just still right twice a day? And coincidentally, something I learned is helpful, but I still would have been better served not spending so much time nitpicking over little details. Uh, I, I struggle. I struggle with how I feel about my time allocation. I don't think it's ever wrong to be curious and to go where your curiosity takes you. Yep. You only live once, right? So whatever makes you happy, do it. Like if it's learning more in depth about where you're at, do that. If it's learning something new, do it. Like whatever makes you feel good, let that be the thing that you do. That's okay. Yo, and then sometimes it makes me really bitter if I can be super transparent for a second. Because yeah. I do spend a tremendous amount of time, like I say, sharpening my blade. And then someone will say something flippant like, Oh, what I love about React is like, you can just pick up React to be really good at it in two weeks. And I'm like, you know what? F you. I spent yeah. <laughs> like years <laughs> trying to get better at any particular technology. And you're telling me that you can just step in with React and be really good at it in two weeks. Like, no, you're building terrible stuff. I guarantee it. Right. And I like. I'm sorry. I just like get that off my chest. Too no shade to of react. How bad you are. <laughs> yeah, right? that's exactly right. It's a very like, naive statement. Yeah, you can't pick anything up and be good at it right away. That's no. just not how life works. Okay, Dunning Kruger at work, for sure. <laughs> Note to self: There are people who read white papers <laughs> about programming, and there are people that don't. I'm the latter. Is that something that can change? <laughs> or is that a natural trait? Love, Ben. I think they're just like, there are people, not to paint with a broad stroke here, and I'm not going to use the right words, but I feel like there are people who are just very academic, academically mm -hmm. minded, and they can draw on this rich history of computer science and oh, you know, when this guy invented this technology back in 1967 at, at Xerox labs or at Bell Labs. And I'm just like, I don't know any of that. And then people talk <laughs> about, oh, DynamoDB is, is so groundbreaking. Look at Google's big table and they wrote this white paper on it. You can go and look up really interesting mathematics about how it works. I'm just like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to look at a white paper on what makes a technology interesting. And I, I like sometimes I feel bad about that, that one of the criticisms of the computer science world or maybe more specifically the web development world, is that it has no history. Like everyone's just relearning the same things over and over again because like one generation isn't passing information down to the next. Or probably more accurately, the new generation is not learning from the old generation. And uh, sometimes I feel like I'm part of that problem by not taking more of an interest in the history of things. But I just, like, I just don't care about it. 
that, that's not the right word. Caring is not the right word. It's just like that doesn't you feel like a good use of time. The practical aspect of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head when you related this to like the rich history of computer science. First of all, I think that the people who read white papers and who are inclined to read white papers are also the type of people who are inclined to write white papers. So mm-hmm. there, that's a different approach to the industry. But it reminded me of this pretty famous Dijkstra quote, computer science is as much about computers as astronomy is about telescopes. Like it's just a tool <laughs> for accomplishing the goal, right? And like we said before, where wherever your curiosity leads you, I think is the right path to go. And if your curiosity leads you into the theory of computer science and like Turing machines and that sort of thing, then fine, go for it. That's great. You're probably going to find more useful content in white papers than you are in blogs for that. I sort of see computer, just the web, computer programming, the industry itself, because it's becoming more and more part of everyday life. I mean, everything is deals with computers and computer systems and computer programming. I mean, so you have the people who design a car and design the factory that builds the car. There are a very limited number of people and they have a very different skill set and a very different kind of mindset and education that they have. But then you have a huge amount of people that need to work on those cars. And it's maybe not a popular opinion, but I think eventually computer programming jobs are going to kind of be like the mechanics of the future, right? That's It's going to slowly, as more and more people do it, there's going to have less and less demand because you have too many people doing it. You're going to, they're going to get paid less and less. It's going to, going to kind of be like most people, a lot of people are in the computer industry and they're programming and it's kind of stuff you learn at low quality schools and they get the job done, but it's like none of them are super geniuses. Right. So, but the super geniuses are the people that are building the systems, right? Building the programming language. So, yeah, I mean, not to paint us with a bad brush because I don't think any of us here are like building new systems and kind of things. We're kind of working within the ecospheres that have already been created. But yeah, I think it's just a mental attitude of I'm more interested in what can I do with something than like what's the history of it? What's the how did it get here? And how's it different, technically different from its predecessors and that sort of thing. I just want to know, how can I build something? Yeah, I'm a very visual thinker, I think. And and if I can't visualize how something works, I find it very hard for me to wrap my head around. And so I think, I think a lot of academic stuff, until I can see it in sort of a hands-on way, it doesn't sink in very well for me. So it doesn't feel like it's yeah. information that I connect with. Yeah, I mean, I learn from tutorials so much better than a white paper. Okay. Note to self. Building instead of installing removes a lot of security and license considerations. Does it? Fact. It does. This is one that I agree with, but I also feel like, not to be rude, Ben, but I think it's maybe a little short-sighted. Yes, it removes a lot of security and license considerations because when you install an NPM package, you have to be concerned. Is this a, does it use a, a permissive license or is it like GPL and requiring that I GPL my code, that sort of thing? And that's not nothing. That's definitely something that we need to be considerate of as we're working. But I think the security thing is a double-edged sword. Yeah. And one way it cuts is really good. One way it cuts is really bad. By building instead of buying or building instead of installing, as you put it, yes, you don't have to worry about some random person halfway across the world introducing, intentionally introducing a malicious backdoor into your app, but you also don't get all of the free security updates that come along from using community projects. You know, like, yeah, raise your hand among the four of us if if you have ever found a regex-based DDoS in any of your hmm. code vulnerability, yeah. right? Like, yeah, nobody has our hand up because that's just not something that I understand how to recognize. But, you know, that's like probably the number one thing that I see come through in the NPM security updates, right? Like somebody found another regex DDoS thing. Like, okay, well, right. technically the chances of that being a problem are so low, but hey, why not fix it? It's there, it's free, it's been vetted. I I, I agree. And I clearly I install stuff. I mean, there's projects that it's, I think it's just not feasible for someone to do on their own. I'm not going to, I'm not going to build my own markdown to HTML converter. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to build my own database drivers. I'm not going to build my own Redis client. I'm not going to build my own less compiler TypeScript, et cetera. Or your own testing library. Oh my, well, uh, maybe that actually feels like it could be tractable. (laughs) Um, But I don't know where the cutoff is. I don't know where I look at something and say, I could build that and that'd be fun and feasible and 
I don't know where that becomes. I just want to install it because I wouldn't be able to do this as, as well as someone else. I will say from a process standpoint, and this is obviously going to vary from company to company, but at work, I can't just install something because I need it. I have to get it approved by the security team and they have to look at it and make sure that it's not problematic and they have to look at the licensing and make sure that that's not problematic. So sometimes building something is just a way not to have a process, not to go through a conversation with another team and just get it done. Oh, bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> Faux show. But also a lot of times when something is provided as a library, it has to take a lot of use cases into account. And sometimes the thing that you're doing exists in a very finite way and you don't have all those use cases. I know the, uh, what's the guy who did Lodash? John David Dalton, something like that. He talks about part of what makes Lodash so fast is that it's not, it's like it doesn't adhere to a specification that there are things that say like the array for each method, the native array for each method does that Lodash doesn't do because it's so esoteric. It's like such a weird edge case in the specification that no one actually needs it. So he doesn't account for it. And because he doesn't account for it, he's able to make his code that much faster. Mm -hmm. And I feel sometimes building stuff is you need the tiny sliver of the thing this does. And by just building the sliver, you don't get all of the weight and the performance issues that might come with the larger thing. Baggage. Yeah. Bagage. It, it, yeah. It, it's a trade-off for sure. It's not obvious. It's not very clear what needs to be done. It's always a calculation. Word. Cool. Well, uh, we've been going for quite a while here, so let's stop it there. So then that brings me to this episode of Working Code is brought to you by Flaky Tests, just like grandma used to make. Thank <laughs> 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 you. If you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. Special thanks to our top patrons, Monty, Gavin, and Sean. All patrons get early access to new episodes and our after show. Tonight on the after show, Ben has a bidet. Uh, we're going to talk about that time <laughs> that Donald Glover paid Tim to prank his director. And maybe if we have time, we'll get into Tim's thoughts on what it takes to become profitable. So homework this week, let's do, let's go back to leave us a review. So you can go to workingcode.dev slash review wherever in the world you live. And it will take you to your local iTunes where you can leave us a review. And we would really appreciate that. You can send us your topics and questions to at working code pod on Twitter or Instagram. You can join our Discord at workingcode.dev slash Discord. You can email us at workingcodepod at gmail.com. You can record a voice memo and send that to us at the same email address, and we will play it on the show. That's it for this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters, and particularly you, Carol. Sorry you had a bad day yesterday. You mean the Aww. world to us. Aww. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.